Welcome to Football and Society, a podcast looking at societal issues through the lens of the beautiful game. In this series, we're covering topics including fan ownership of football clubs, Glasgow's old firm Derby, and class dynamics in US women's professional soccer. This week, we're exploring football, race, and national identity in Portugal. Eder Lopez's goal in the 2016 European Championship final won Portugal its first ever major football trophy and catapulted him to the status of a national hero. A recent article argues that the celebration of Eder, born in the former Portuguese colony Guinea-Bissau, and other racialized players depends on the ability to perform and assimilate Portuguese culture. Pedro Almeida's article, published in the Society and Soccer Journal, analyzes the relation between football, race, nation, and colonial past, highlighting the racial underpinnings of Portugueseness. Pedro's empirical analysis focuses on contemporary press discourses in Portugal, particularly the narratives that emerged during the 2016 European Championship. In addition, the study draws on interviews with various agents, including journalists and former professional players. While the success of the national team in 2016 was perceived and presented by some as a symbol of the redefinition of Portuguese national identity to reflect the multiracial and diverse society, in reality, it hasn't weakened the idea of a national we. Portuguese and implicitly white, as opposed to the African and implicitly black. The article compares this to popular press discourses following France's triumph in the 1998 World Cup, when similar remarks were made as to the success of assimilation and sports power to unify people of all races and backgrounds. In conclusion, Pedro writes that Portugueseness is still conceived of today as something innately white in the national imaginary, and racialized populations still occupy a subaltern position in Portuguese society. Pedro Almeida works at the Centre for Research in Anthropology at the University of Coimbra in Portugal. We're delighted to have him join us today to discuss his research. Pedro, welcome and thank you very much. Thank you very much, Norman. Thank you for the invitation. Absolute pleasure. Um, first question, the most straightforward one. What inspired you to undertake this research? Well, uh, my article is a, is a follow-up uh, to my doctoral thesis, which deals precisely with the relationship between football, race uh, and nation. What made me interested in this field of study had to do in the first place with my passion for football since I was a child. So before being an academic, I was already a football fan. And later, fortunately, I had the, the opportunity to, to combine my passion with my work subjects. And uh, well, although neglected by the Portuguese academia, I, I stress the idea that football is a uniquely favorable field for studying and understanding a Portuguese society, past and present. So my main research uh, interests uh, have been focused on the issues of, of race, post-colonialism and national identity. And previously, I also worked on um, football subcultures uh, around the issues of identity and violence in Portugal, in Portuguese context, uh, namely among the ultra and the casual groups. Fantastic. Um, I was just going to say before Chris comes in with his question uh, for listeners that um, Pedro is a Benfica fan, but we're not going to talk about Graham Souness's spell at Benfica um, <laughs> as much as I'd love to. And uh, also the University of Coimbra, I believe, is the oldest and most prestigious institute in Portugal. Is that correct? Yeah, it's, it's the oldest, one of the most prestigious. Yeah, right. Uh, very modest, Pedro, very, very modest. I have to admit at, at this point, um, unfortunately, it's the reality of the British school system that we don't have a huge amount of, of knowledge of Portuguese history and unfortunately we are as a country unfortunately somewhat ignorant about Portuguese history 
So I wondered if you could just give us a brief overview of the, the rise and fall of Portugal as a colonial power and how that relates to other European nations like Britain or France. The reason I ask that is your article references a degree of Portuguese exceptionalism uh, around the civilizing or the supposed civilizing mission of Portugal's colonial project. So yeah, if you could just give us a very quick overview, hundreds okay. of years of history, that'd be great. Thank you. <laughs> well, the, the thesis about Portuguese exceptionalism was developed, in fact, during the, the fascist regime. Uh, so 1926 until 1974, we had almost 50 years. Basically, it expresses the idea that Portuguese uh, colonialism, unlike others, respected the native cultures, particularly with regards to miscegenation. What's interesting is that this thesis is still uh, hegemonic in our society, and those who dare to challenge it are immediately attacked by mainstream politicians, academia, media, etc., who calls them uh, the radical left and accuse them of creating unnecessary tensions and conflicts. They keep saying this all the time. So just Sounds brief... very familiar, Pedro. Very familiar. <laughs> just two brief examples to show you how dominant this ideology is. Last spring, over a dispute about uh, historical memory and racism between the far right and the... Um, some anti-racist movements, Antonio Costa, the prime minister, uh, said that both sides were pernicious to Portuguese society. He stressed that one side, the so-called uh, radical left, has a self-harming view of uh, our history, which according to him is very dangerous. So once again, he praised the country that, you know, over the centuries was able to mix around the world and has developed a great capacity for intercultural dialogue, etc. So among other considerations, he stressed that both phenomena uh, were extremely destructive. And uh, just a, a second example um, that occurred like four years ago, uh, when uh, Marcelo uh, de Souza, um, president of the Republic, in a visit that he did to Senegal, uh, underlined that Portugal, you know, recognized the injustice of slavery when it abolished in 1761. Uh, in addition of not being exactly true, uh, since at least until the first half of the 20th century, during the colonial occupation in Africa, Portugal practiced uh, uh, several forms of exploitation uh, very close to slavery. What is interesting is how a high figure of the state perpetuates this myth of we were different from the rest of the world, you know. In, ignoring the fact that Portugal was responsible for the trafficking uh, of around 6 million uh, Africans. I must say that the vast majority of Portuguese have absolutely no idea of these numbers, despite the fact that uh, we were uh, one of the nations that unfortunately led the enslavement of Africans. Portugal was the first uh, nation starting the Atlantic slave trade in um, uh, 1444, when more than 200 people were taken by force uh, from their territory in the West Africa and were put in for sale in Lagos, which is a city in the Algarve, the south of Portugal. Let me say that all this exceptionalism is, of course, very much present in sport context. For example, a few years ago, when I was uh, doing uh, my PhD, I was watching a, a, a TV show in, in the, the sports channel 
Uh, and the, the, the director of the, the most prestigious Portuguese newspaper said that something like, you know, we were different from the other former colonial powers. Uh, the way the Portugal colonized was very different from the French, the English, or, or the Spanish, or the Dutch. Uh, and he said that, oh, they had a merely, they had a merely commercial purpose. This wasn't the case of the Portuguese, of course. <laughs> In the Portuguese case, he stressed, there was always an attempt to, you know, to meet interests, cultures, share experiences, a tolerant way of understanding the differences uh, throughout the world. So th this dominant narrative makes the Portuguese colonial violence invisible, which was obviously present. There were, of course, some, some differences between British, French and Portuguese colonialism, for instance. Uh, generally speaking, the, the, the British colonize um, more countries than any other European nation. I, I guess now it's like around 50 countries are former British colonies. And Portugal's empire was smaller. However, Portugal colonized Brazil, a huge territory, and some considerable parts of Africa as well, such Angola, Mozambique, Cape Verde, as well as East Timor. But quoting uh, M. S. Cesar, a Martinician uh, author, poet, and politician, he, he used to say that between colonization and civilization, there's an infinite distance. So I totally agree with him. To finish, another important difference uh, between these former colonial powers is that Portugal was the last one to decolonize. For instance, Britain started the decolonization immediately after the Second uh, World War, uh, when the Labour Party gained much more power. As you know, of course, probably better than me, we had wind of change speech uh, in 1960, I guess, in South Africa, in which Arl Macmillan uh, stressed that they had no intention to block independence of the occupied territories. So in Portugal, the scenario was totally the opposite. In fact, the liberation wars or the overseas wars, as is commonly said here, depending on the political perspective, I prefer to call it liberation wars, they only started in 1960 and last until the Portuguese Revolution, uh, 14 years later, when the fascist regime was, was overthrown. But despite these differences, both Portugal and Great Britain, we shared the idea that our colonialism was very different uh, from the others. We can see it, for example, in the creation of the Commonwealth, uh, as well as the CPLP, which is more or less uh, the same. It means like community of uh, Portuguese language countries. And among other things, they both express the idea of a huge community, you know, although the different power relations that are established in the two contexts. So it's not true. It's not a true brotherhood in my perspective. <laughs> Can you explain to us how there's a concept you use called lusotropicalism? And you say that that's a Portuguese concept that kind of talks about what you've been discussing about that idea that Portuguese colonialism was exceptional. Can you explain to our listeners a bit more about that concept, lusotropicalism, and what it means and the history of the term? So when was that first used, for example? Well, lusotropicalism was a concept that was coined by a Brazilian anthropologist named Gilberto Freire in the early 30s of the 20th century, and was later um, uh, adopted by the Portuguese government. And it expressed the idea that Portuguese colonialism, unlike others, respected native cultures. 
it's interesting that the Portuguese fascist regime has, um, for some time, rejected or ignored this series, uh, as in a way, they kind of called for a racial mixture uh, of the Portuguese with the African people. In fact, it was only after uh, the Second World War, more specifically in the 1950, in the early 50s, that the Portuguese regime adopted um, as official discourse the theory of lusotropicalism, but in a more simplistic version and with clear nationalist purposes. And why they did it? Because at the time it was necessary to create propaganda strategy that will defend the so-called overseas Portugal in face of international pressure, which demanded that Portugal uh, ended its colonial occupation, as was happening with most of the colonial powers. In other words, the official discourse uh, was now based on the idea that the Portuguese nation from the north of the continental Portugal to East Timor was a multiracial nation and it was characterized by a healthy coexistence between different uh, people. Uh, what happened was this narrative was actually so deeply rooted in our society that even today this idea remains, you know, that in fact our colonialism was the, distinct from the others. Uh, like I said before, that thesis is absolutely hegemonic in our society. And that's why I argue that lusotropicalist ideas are still um, a very powerful way of depoliticizing the debate about Portuguese colonialism. At the end of the day, it wasn't so bad after all. You know, we did some great things there. And I mean, look at them now. Uh, they are worse than when we left. You, know, you, you can hear this kind of talk here in the, you know, you know, in the bars, in, in the streets, you know, this kind of everyday uh, conversation. So it's still very, very present and it's still very powerful. Yeah, those arguments are incredibly familiar to us. Um, from Even from history lessons at school, at, at GCSE level, to be perfectly honest with you, the, um, the one that I always find quite staggering is the abolishment of slavery is always celebrated as an English achievement, yet nobody seems to mention the fact that we actually basically created the industry in the first place. Um, yeah, yeah it's, it, it, it's spectacular. And, it, and the, those... Those colonial narratives still exist now. The the, the civilizing mission is still it's still mentioned in, in Parliament now. Or oh, well, at least we gave them this. It's like yeah, they were probably functioning a lot better before we arrived. But there you go. That's the end of conversation. That's never never had right. You see that a multiracial national team somehow legitimized the thesis of cultural specificity based on coexistence with the native peoples. Can you please discuss what you mean by this? Yes, of course. The Portuguese case presents slight differences compared with other colonial nations, not because, of course, Portugal was a particularly uh, inclusive colonizer, but rather be, uh, because the inclusion of overseas uh, players, so-called overseas players, in the national teams started during the colonial period. As a result of colonial policies, you know, black football players from the occupied territories, mainly from Angola and Mozambique, were considered nationals. Eusebio is the most well-known case, but he was uh, from Mozambique. But there were others, of course, many others. So this inclusion and the success of these players in the national team, especially in the uh, 1966 World Cup, when Portugal reached the third place, uh, which England won, uh, somehow uh, protected the, the Portuguese regime against international accusations of racist practices. Uh, no need to say that this so-called inclusion uh, was very 
fragile um, and very much dependent on assimilationist notions uh, and all, all that stuff. So it's, of course, they, they were not at the same uh, level, let's say, that the, the, the white Portuguese. Earlier, you mentioned East Timor, and in the article, you referenced the celebrations at the Euro 2016 win in Portuguese-speaking former colonies, including East Timor, um, and that these were widely covered in the media in Portugal, um, as well as across Europe. And there was the sense that wins are always celebrated uh, in these former colonial possessions. I just wondered to what extent is, is that feeling genuinely universal? Uh, and does that vary by territory? Are there certain territories where there is kind of more adherence to that and somewhere there's less? And to what extent it's a media fictionalization? Yeah, the answer is not easy, of course, but we have different contexts and different situations. Although the, there were indeed celebrations, whether in East Timor, Angola or Mozambique, the truth is that they didn't have the dimension that the media tried to depict. Uh, but in fact, they do occur not only when the national team achieves, achieves trophies, but also when the Portuguese clubs uh, win titles, especially Benfica. It has a, a considerable number of supporters in the, the former colonies. But this happened particularly in big cities, such uh, in capitals such as Maputo, Luanda, or Dili. You know, this is where the local elites are concentrated, who also played an important role in perpetuating this idea that, like we previously discussed, of the so-called Portuguese uh, presence, you know, was not so bad after all. Uh, furthermore, some of these elites they have studied or live here in Portugal. And in fact, they created some ties with Portugal, with Portuguese culture, with Portuguese clubs, and with the national team. But at the same time, I would like to stress that, uh, in my view, this part of this is also fiction, because in many parts of the territory of these countries, uh, Portuguese is not even spoken, you know, and uh, the symbols of Portugueseness uh, are not welcome, uh, especially in Angola, I would say. But in the case of Timor, there's a little difference because right after the, the peaceful decolonization of the territory, uh, you know, there was never an armed struggle against the Portuguese. We compare what, what happened in Angola and Mozambique and Guinea-Bissau. Um, so Indonesia invaded it like immediately after 1976. The process was very violent, of course, as always. Uh, the difference is that it is now was Televis, you know, live. And one event uh, in 1991, I remember, like if it was yesterday, because we were, I was at school, you know, it was particularly important in the, this Timor-Portugal relationship. You know, the Indonesian army fired on demonstrators that were honoring uh, that student in, in Dili, the capital. On that day, almost 300 people were killed at the scene. And other protesters were, you know, in the following days were hunted down, let's say, by the Indonesia army and by armed militias as well. So these events, uh, they created, in fact, a national commotion. However, and I guess that's, that's important to stress, that these speeches and feelings were ambiguous. At the time, of course, I didn't understand, but later <laughs> I had the, uh, the opportunity to read a lot about that. So if, on one hand, Portuguese society stood by Timor's self-determination, on the other hand, it claimed its Portugueseness. So Timor would gain independence lots of years later, uh, in 2001. And part of the Timorese did establish links uh, with Portugal and with the Portuguese national team, in fact. 
Uh, and yes, in, in the streets of Dili, the, the, the capital, the, the victory of the national team in 2016 was, was celebrated by some locals, which also show us how complex and full of ambiguities and contradictions these processes are. You quote from Benfica's manager in 2016 when he said of Renato Sanchez, he's a savage and as a savage, I want him to carry on being savage. And this utterance combined with the questions raised at the time over his age is clearly influenced by colonial discourses around the black body and the white European notion of racial superiority. The fact is, in England, black players are to this day labelled by some in the media as big, strong and powerful or erratic or having raw talent. Such opinions, when uttered, are frequently challenged. A good example is one comment made by Graham Souness, actually, about mm-hmm. Paul Pogba. Mm-hmm. And those making them are often called out. Was the Benfica manager for his comments about Renato Sanchez called out? And are such comments on the country, still regularly made. What does this tell us about Portuguese society as a whole? Yeah, it's a very interesting question, but it says a lot about our society. All these discourses, of course, as we know, are deeply rooted in in European colonialism and the way the black body was and and still is uh, constructed. Ben Curtin, one of the most renowned authors on this field, he has a brilliant approach uh, on how the idea of the black athlete was constructed you know, in one of his books, Race, Sports and Politics. He stresses the, the way black athletes, both female and, uh, and male, were and are described as being you know, strong, powerful and quick, uh, exactly, but with unpredictable and wild moments when they supposedly lack the cognitive capabilities, you know. Uh, so these notions are very important for us to understand the contemporary racial discourses, not only in football, but in other sports as well. One of the cases uh, outside football that clearly shows how the uh, representations of blackness are the product of this colonial imaginary, you know, are, are for example, the ones that we have, that we, we hear about uh, Serena Williams, you know, the, um, in addition of the so-called uh, excess of physicality, she has been described as someone who has precisely those kind of uncontrollable instincts and rage attacks, etc. It's it's interesting because we have John McEnroe, uh, the, the famous. <laughs> he had more or less this kind of, of behaviors and so the so-called rage attacks, you know. But the discourses were completely different at the time. So I have to say that these comments about the black football players in Portugal are not that common, at least in the last years. I mean, a considerable part of of the football uh, actors, such as journalists and supporters, they tend to think like that, but usually they they don't say it openly. So it's not an everyday topic, which is good at least. But at the same time, it's true that no one, almost no one confronted Befica's manager. Actually, there was a journalist that asked Renato uh, what he thought about his coach's words, and he said something like, maybe uh, he said that in the sense of giving everything on the pitch. Uh, so, yeah, I'm still the same. I, I'm still wild. And, you know, it, it, and it, was, it, it was it. And, yes, it says a lot about Portuguese society. And uh, this kind of narratives were, in fact, Highly reproducing media, for example, do, during the, the World Cup in South Africa 11 years ago. The speeches about whiteness and blackness showed, you know, 
uh, how deeply rooted are these notions about the African athlete uh, as opposed to the European one, the white one, you know? For example, I remember, because you know, I, I did a work on, on, the, on that subject, when Portugal played against Ivory Coast, it was the first game, one of the Portuguese uh, newspaper was, wrote something like, oh, after all, Ivory Coast was not as African as we uh, used to say, no? Those players, you know, uh, of course, I don't remember exactly the words, but those players... They disobey everything that we are supposed to know about African football. You know, powerful, but unbalanced, uh, fast, but disorganized, impulsive, but, you know, little rational. So, but despite all those narratives, I would say that now, you know, 11 years after, these kind of discourses are less common. But of course, uh, there's still a, a long way to go. No need to say that. <laughs> Absolutely. It's really interesting you bring up the Ivory Coast there because I recall discourses around that side, which would be something along the lines of they're very European in how they play the game. It's like, oh, okay, that's incredibly problematic, right? Because what you're suggesting is is that if it's not the European way, then it's an African way and the African way isn't, isn't you know, air quotes good. It's uh, it's just really interesting to hear, to hear you say this because I think a lot of what you were saying mirrors probably exactly how the rest of us feel that the English sport media and English pundits certainly... Um, Frame mm-hmm. the black athlete. It it still exists, not to the extent, and as I say, it is challenged, but it but it still exists. And Graham Sooness's comments were were last year, and this guy still works for Sky Sports as a pundit. So it's challenged, but yeah. to what extent is it challenged? Who 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 really knows if it's challenged strongly enough? So move on to the next question. Apologies because it's quite long. So apologies to you and to to listeners. Um, have <laughs> to listen to me speak for five minutes straight, but um. Both um, Mesut Ozil and Lillian Turam have alluded to the fact that when they play well and win, they are German and French. When the other team play poorly or do not meet expectations, they're considered not true German or French and instead as immigrants. Do you feel this applies to black Portuguese footballers? And ultimately, parallel in France after the World Cup in 98, do you think the framing of Portugal's victory at the Euro 2016 with a team compromising five African descendants as a symbol of the redefinition of the national identity was in itself a form of colonialism um did anyone non non-white state this was the case um and did anyone ask any of the black players in the team whether they felt included in the concept of portugueseness if they saw themselves as completely portuguese and i guess mm-hmm. felt like they were allowed to feel portuguese right yeah yeah <laughs> it is of course there's a very interesting question as well and and uh, the answer is, is not simple of course but um well, I, I think so. Uh, I think this also applies to, to black Portuguese football players, but in a slightly different way. Um, the discourses are not exactly the same, you know, in the sense that just a few people tend to say it openly, uh, mostly the, the, the extreme right, you know. Uh, but that idea is still there, of course. Uh, like I said before, non-white footballers' access to Portugueseness needs to be permanently uh, negotiated. For example, there was a chant uh, that was sung by the fans uh, during the, the Euro 2016 in France that shows our racialized players do not have the same tattoos uh, as the white ones. Part of the lyrics was something like the gypsy crosses and Ronaldo scores. They were speaking about Ricardo Quaresma, uh, which is a, a, a very well-known Portuguese player. Uh, he, he played in uh, Porto, uh, he played abroad, he played in Chelsea, Inter Milan. 
So he was, he was a very he's, he's a very well known player, even if it wasn't. I mean, he's not even called by his own name, you know, he, uh, Ricardo. He's just the gypsy, you know. So just like in the case of the Roma population, uh, black footballers are not, in my in my view, they are not seen uh, as fully belonging to, to to the nation. But I have to say no, that no one stated that this supposed new identity was a form of colonialism. Uh, these this discussions only took place in the context of uh, anti-racist activism, which which tried once again to bring to public discussions uh, the issues uh, around the different kind of impacts on of colonization in our society, and namely uh, the colonial way of thinking. We had not so much uh, success, I must say. Andre, you mentioned anti-racist activism there, and very timely because I wanted to ask you about the Black Lives Matter movement, which of course has become prominent around the world in a number of countries mm -hmm. in the last few years. I just wonder whether it's been embraced in Portugal, given the notions of Portugueseness and negation of blackness that you mentioned. Yeah, as a result of, um, of you know, lots of years, decades of of struggle led by black activists and anti-racist movements, you know, as well as other progressive voices in in our society, the issue of inequality and racial discrimination has gained an, an important space in public debate over the last years. However, the barriers these movements um, face are enormous. You know, just to give you an example. Uh, precisely at the time of time of George Floyd's murder, anti-racist demonstrations also took place here in Portugal, in, in several cities, but especially in Lisbon. Uh, the number of participants was impressive. Um, in Lisbon, there were about twenty thousand people, and we were in the middle of the, the pandemic. Uh, so, and this this demonstration became the biggest anti-racist demonstration ever held in Portugal. But the important, the, the, the important issue was now, what was or what were the dominant political discourses? How did the, the, they position themselves? Uh, for example, the, the director of the most, I'll say, the most prestigious national newspaper, you know, the um, stress in an opinion piece, the so-called radicalism, I'm, I'm quoting his expression, the radicalism of anti-racism, you know, What happened was that he took advantage of a poster displayed by a protester, you know, you know, among thousands of others, where he, we could read "All cops are bastards." Uh, so, thus, he and others uh, they underline instigation of violence against police forces, and they denounce the the radicalism of anti-racism. Uh, so, in fact, the, 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 these hegemonic discourses have been equating racism and, and, and anti-racism, uh, meeting dominant approaches that seems to me that they are limited to an alleged moral condemnation of racism, which seem uh, instead more committed to emptying the political content of the anti-racist struggle. So answering your question <laughs> directly, we are still at the stage where there's a, there's a debate about whether or not there is racism in Portuguese society, uh, where the police violence that is exercised in the so-called problematic neighborhoods is justified, where the colonial past is glorified, Therefore, the question of belonging, the issue of blackness versus Portugueseness, is still a highly marginalized topic in our society in general.
to finish, Pedro, we were wondering if you could expand on the narrative of the discoveries that you state is transversal to all layers of Portuguese society. Yes, it is. It is. Despite the, the brutality that it's inherent to any colonial system, you know, Portugal, at least until a decade ago, uh, the term Portuguese colonialism was rarely heard or read, even in the education system itself. Instead, the terms often used to describe our colonial past were and still are, you know, discoveries, Portuguese presence, the overseas war, etc. So there, there is still an enormous difficulty on the part of Portuguese society uh, in recognizing that the relationships established in, in the former colonies were nothing more than a system of domination and exploitation of colonized people, both materially and symbolically. And so this, this idea of the supposed universal legacy left by the Portuguese is still very present in the in the national imagination. And the mainstream academia itself, I must say that it contributed a lot to reproduce this romantic view of the so-called discoveries. I mean, academia, media, politicians, mainly from the right, but also from some sectors of the left, uh, everyone is playing an important role in the perpetuation of this narrative. Uh, just an example. Uh, the Communist Party, which played a very important role in the anti-fascist resistance, and is still very important nowadays in our society, there's almost like 10% of the, of the votes, um, only took a stand for, uh, for the independence of the colonies in the early 50s. So you can imagine how the, the, the right <laughs> spectrum, um, what they said and what they thought about that. <laughs> But they still think so the, the colonial ideology is still very present. A few years ago, five years ago, a museum called World of Discoveries was inaugurated in Porto, the second major city in the country, where Chelsea beat the main city in the last Champions League final. And you can you can read on their official webpage things like you know Portugal played a leading role in this process of. Uh, circulating people, animals, and plants around the world, you know. I guess you can see there's absolutely no efforts by the Portuguese society to acknowledge that this so-called circulation of people was in fact slavery and other forms of domination and subjugation of the non-white others. The, the, the use of language, the fact that Europeans still use the word discovery and to, to describe the kind of landing um, on the North American continent and the South American continent, to, to use it as discovery suggests that it, there was nobody else there beforehand, right? It's just, it's frankly uh, like incredible. That was this, this word is still used now in the 21st century. It's uh, yeah. Incredibly frustrating, but um, that was brilliant. Pedro, thank you ever so much. Um, if our listeners would like to engage with you and your work, is there a, a way of getting in touch with that you prefer? Is it email or social media? Um, yeah, well, of course, uh, by email and Facebook as well and Instagram. But I, I will prefer that the, the email is the, is the the best option. And yeah. thank you very much once again for the invitation.